Smitty. Smitty the Duke. Gee, I almost popped you. Well, you and me's friends, Smitty, ain't we? Right hey, we? Sure are, Yank. Sure. Any bell of mine can have anything I got, Smitty. Anything. <laughs> She's a good looker, ain't she, Smitty, huh? Ain't she? <laughs> Come on, honey. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are on our sixth movie in the 1940 nominees, The Long Voyage Home. Directed by John Ford and sort of starring John Wayne. Yeah. And also John Wayne is here. It's interesting that Wikipedia says that it stars John Wayne because for the first two thirds of the movie, his character is not the point. Yeah, no, he's like, he's third lead, arguably fourth lead in this film. Yeah. Boy, I wish that meant three more interesting people were above him in the billing. (laughs) But it was John Ford versus Boats, and it turns out I hate Boats more. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't hate Boats, as we know. Mm -hmm. But this was a a conflicting one for me. Not for the Boats reason, but just because visually it is absolutely gorgeous. The cinematography is incredible. The use of lighting. Again, we have Greg Toland Mm -hmm. doing his practice leading up to Citizen Kane, but as an actual story, it was not terribly compelling. No, there's barely any story here, to be honest. John Ford versus Boats is kind of the joke, and really, this is why you don't hire John Ford. This is why I don't like John Ford, in that there's a lot of beautiful cinematography still, but like, there's also just kind of a lot of just sort of waiting around for something to happen and filling that time with like ah men declarations about men what men ah what are you gonna do it is a very testosterone heavy movie and like not in an exciting action movie kind of way no in a like boring report about people in diners in iowa who still like trump kind of a way Which is to say that the politics of this movie are to the right of where they actually are, but just that, like, this obsession with a certain type of masculinity that's just stated as an unexamined fact is just very tiring. (laughs) And it's a lot of this movie, because the plot of this movie is really just a bunch of guys on a tramp steamer make it back to England. It's kind of a rough journey because they have a lot of ammunition on board. And World War II has broken out. They make it there after some tribulations, and one of them dies tragically. Two of them die tragically. Oh, right. God, the first one dies tragically so early, I completely forgot about him by the end of the film. And we don't even know him, really. Yeah. To be fair, I don't feel like we know anybody except for the one who dies tragically second. Right, which is specifically because... It immediately follows the scene that marks him for death, which is the best scene in the whole movie. Yes. Once they get to England, they all go ashore, and they're all going to make sure that John Wayne, who plays an extremely good Swedish man named Ole Olsen, is going to make it back home. He almost gets press-ganged or taken to 
against his will, another ship called the Amindra. Something like that. But the crew rescues him, but in the process, in a very confusing way, Driscoll, who is arguably actually our lead, but again, what is this movie, gets hit by a thrown club that hits him, like, in the side, but somehow he falls forward into their boat. And is taken on board, and then that ship, like the very end of the movie, is the reveal that that ship has been sunk by the Germans. Everyone on it is dead. Just because two deaths was not tragic enough and we needed a third. That is the sum total of actual incidents in this film. It really is. And it was almost two hours long. I mean, it was an hour 40. The thing that means is that this movie is made or broken by the small little moments between the crew and, like, exploring these people's lives. And, like, the bad news is that with, like, two or three exceptions, those moments are boring and forgettable. <laughs> you know, I think it's really interesting to compare this movie to Grapes of Wrath, which was also John Ford and Greg Toland, mm -hmm. see, I guess, really how important it is for John Ford's writer to be very descriptive, <laughs> which I find to be actually kind of ridiculous because the writer of this was Eugene O'Neill, who wrote like paragraphs of stage directions. But basically, he took four one-act plays that he had already written that were set around World War One, and put them into one script that was now set in World War II. And I wonder if the script that he received didn't have the usual O'Neill paragraphs of stage directions and setting descriptions. That seems likely to me, because... Even though it's based on four Eugene O'Neill plays, he is not the credited screenplay writer. The screenplay is from a guy named Dudley Nichols, who also wrote Stagecoach and various other things for like the next two decades. Right. So as a screenwriter, he probably just didn't do that. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about Grapes of Wrath, you know, Steinbeck actually did that adaptation. So he would have had the hand in adding the details that make Grapes of Wrath which is also really a movie about little moments in a group of people's lives. So much more effective than this is. Yeah, this is a weird movie. And I think part of it is Greg Toland, who's one of the best cinematographers who ever lived. And part of it is what you're talking about, that it's like he's checked out when actors are on screen. All the interesting work is what you would think of as the second unit director's job in this movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, like, all the really great shots, all the really great stagings are, like, establishing shots or, like, shots to end a sequence. The parts where everybody is talking are just, like... I don't know, let's put a camera at the end of the compartment and have them just all laying down. That'll kind of work. I mean, it's a little more complex than that, but it really feels like somebody's heart isn't in it when people are talking in this movie. Well, yeah, and really comparing the indoor scenes in this movie, which are, for the most part, in the hull of the ship, to the indoor scenes in Grapes of Wrath, like, the very early scene that's all by candlelight with the flashback. I guess he just didn't care about lighting this in an interesting way. <laughs> it's just normal. It's just normal looking. 
it's fine. Like, it's clear. Yeah. People are visible, I guess, but there's nothing exciting about it. And then you have stuff like the very end of this movie, of The Long Journey Home, where someone is standing on the deck and drops the newspaper that says that the ship was torpedoed into the water. And they're so, so far in the background. And then you literally see the light go out toward them, like darkness moving toward this character. And it's like, well, where was that the whole movie? Because you might have made me care. (laughs) Yeah, there's just huge sequences that are lit like one of those bad early 30s vaguely military romantic comedies the whole sequence with the women who come on board at the start of the movie which is problematic for tons of reasons we're just on a soundstage and we got to make sure everybody's lit and let's all make it home before dinner right right we don't need to take more than one shot here let's just do it and get it done if any of the performances were like amazing standout grip your attention performances I probably wouldn't notice it as much. I would probably just go, and then there's the great shot where, because there are some great shots in this movie, in between the stretches of just kind of workman-like stuff, but nobody's really acting their heart out here. Some people are fine. Some people are even pretty good, but nobody is like, holy shit, I need to pay attention to this movie. There's definitely no Henry Fonda moments in this. There is one scene that holds your attention like that, which we should probably start talking about and stop dancing around. But I think that's as much about the script and the situation as it is about any of the performances in it. So all of the guys on the ship, and this is kind of important to this particular scene, are from different countries. So there's an Irish guy, and there's an English guy, and there's an Italian guy, and then there's John Wayne the Swede. (laughs) (laughs) There's an English guy who's a little bit more upper class, because he doesn't have the Cockney accent. He is called Smitty, because his last name is Smith. And he's always been very standoffish. He doesn't want to hook up with the girls who come onto the ship in the beginning who are like running around and dancing and pretty clearly having sex with these sailors. But you know the code. Mm -hmm. So they're in the Atlantic and they know that they are in sort of German occupied, if you call it that with the submarine, waters. And they have to kill all of their lights so that the submarines won't see them. And then someone sees lights that are flashing across the water and then smitty goes off somewhere to do something and they think that he's a spy and he's actually communicating with this other ship which is why there are these flashing lights that are happening on the water they find this box that he was hiding and then they dunk it in water because they're afraid that it's a bomb And then they corner Smitty and steal the key from around his neck and open the box. And inside are some now very wet letters. They start reading the letters and it becomes almost instantly clear that Smitty had a family, but he is an alcoholic and has never been able to kick it and has instead gotten discharged from the military and kind of destroyed his own life. And then, even more tragically, not destroyed it so thoroughly that everybody in his life no longer loves him, but that he doesn't trust himself to be near them anymore, even though they are constantly writing him letters he cannot throw away, begging him to come back, because they still love him. 
And it is a great performance by Thomas Mitchell, who plays Driscoll, who ends up reading all the letters. It is the most switched on John Ford seems to be, is chronicling who figures out what's going on when in the room, and when the sort of grip of hysteria that he's a German spy leaves each person, and when they start being ashamed of themselves, essentially. And it's a beautiful, small little scene that actually gets at the scale of drama that goes on because you're just bored. Right. Because these ship voyages are so fucking long. And they can't even read because they can't have the lights on. Right. And it's the one scene that really hits, oh, this is a story that really demands this setting and these people and says something about this setting and these people. And it's performed well, and people are, like, engaged on the screen. Yeah, I would actually even say that Ian Hunter, who plays Smitty, is very good in this scene, and he is tied up and has a gag stuffed in his mouth and has no lines and is still emoting really, really well. Right. Like, there are all of these people in the scene that, even though it's really just Driscoll talking, just reading these letters for about three minutes, you are seeing the faces of everybody else. For instance, you see when Smitty is like, well, the jig is up. Before, he was like, I'm going to beat all of you to death if you fucking open that box. And, like, it starts out struggling. And you can kind of see the moment where he's like, well, now everyone knows my shame. So there's no point in struggling anymore. Like, I've already lost. And also you can see when it goes from that to then feeling the shame again from the letters Mm -hmm. that it's so much more painful to hear it out loud yeah and in this setting yeah i think it's actually really impressive that he manages to convey all of that with no lines and uh we can't see his mouth yeah absolutely (laughs) it is the only scene in this movie that feels like it was directed by the guy that directed grapes of wrath like really yes it's a great little scene and unfortunately it including all of the business about everybody sort of deciding to get all worked up about the possibility of Smitty being a spy is generously a tenth of the movie. I would say it's like ten minutes. That's about right. And then instead of really having there be fallout from that, Smitty almost immediately dies in the German attack that's, I think, literally the next scene. Yeah. Then you see his family taking his body away when they get to England which is fine, but kind of not what was interesting about that scene. And also, I don't think it's given nearly the weight that it should. I mean, particularly, again, when we're comparing it to Grapes of Wrath, where this character that we've barely known, when Grandpa dies and they do that incredible burial and sermon scene, which, again, I think this is really down to the script not being as good as the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, I mean... This is a movie where you can really see it being stitched together from a bunch of smaller plays. That is a scene where it's like, well, now we're done with that play. Time for a new play. Right, right. Sometimes that does at least add a little bit of variety to a largely boring film. But it means that the only thing tying the whole film together is this weird abstract, ah, the tragedy of men of the sea. Ah, they can just never escape the waters. And it's like, what? Why? What, is any, what does any of that mean? Ah, they're all on a boat. Yeah, Moby Dick this aid. So two scenes that I want to talk about, which happen to be the only scenes in the movie that have women in them. One, because it's super problematic, and this is the screen test of time, and that is sort of what we do, <laughs> if it's there to be talked about. 
and the other just because it is disorientingly badly acted. (laughs) So the first one, I guess we should just get this out of the way. So when the movie opens, the steamer is in port somewhere in the West Indies. And there's a bunch of women who come onto the boat to dance, quote unquote, with everybody and are bizarrely dressed as like, I I, I wouldn't even know how to describe what it is that they're wearing. It's sort of the stereotypical Mexican outfit that we saw in some earlier movies. And they do sort of speak Spanish, but also it's the West Indies and they're all pretty white. Well, I mean, I think literally one of the actresses is not white. But nobody is black. Oh, no, absolutely nobody is black. Yeah. One person person is vaguely Spanish. And I'm like, you know what? You could just set it somewhere else if you're going to have this weird haze code thing where you can't even like imply that maybe these people would have sex with each other. It was a really, really weird scene for that reason. The other thing that's weird about that scene is that it ends with them making very explicit that all of our main characters are skipping out on the bill. Yeah. Which is weird in the narrative and weird metatextually because it implies that the Hayes Code is okay with it being this clear that prostitution is going on, but only if you skip out on the bill with the sex worker. I mean, honestly, that does sound pretty in line with the Hayes Code. <laughs> yeah, right. But it's like, how did you get to there? Like, Yeah, it's totally okay to hire prostitutes as long as you steal from them is a weird way of framing this. And the reason that they skip out on the bill is because one of them has a bottle of rum on them even though they're all wasted. And the captain of the ship says, we said no rum or you wouldn't get paid. And then they argue that they didn't bring the rum, that it was already there, which I think is true. Yeah. And of course the captain is like, nope, you're all a bunch of women. (laughs) I don't believe you. Get off my ship with no money. And like one of the very first things that we see is one of them grabbing one of the sailors, I think Driscoll, and pulling him into a room and closing the door. So Like, it's not... It is one of the most blatant sequences of someone is having sex that we have seen since this project began. Yeah, even including pre-code movies, I think. Yeah, I think only Cleopatra spent this much time implying that sex was happening. Well, it spent a lot more time, but really only it. (laughs) That scene was problematic in a number of ways because it was racist, sexist, and also really shitty to sex workers. Then the final important scene really in this movie, I guess if you want to say that it's important, is the scene where when they get to England, some guy who is clearly like an impressment pimp is really the only sort of way that I could describe him. Right. This sequence seems so hurt by being compressed down from what was clearly a larger part of a play or something. Right. Because... You have to do so much expositional work about what is happening that every one of our main characters seems, drunk or not, like the stupidest people alive. That it, like, takes them this long to figure out what's going on, that they all have to, like, play dumb through, like, five different, like, giant glaring warning signs of what is happening. Right. Each new character that is introduced is introduced as, hey- You're a suspicious guy trying to get us drunk and take away our friend, and I'm not gonna let you. Where's my beer? (laughs) 
Yes, basically. At some point, Ole gets separated from his friends and is in this bar where they have hired a woman to pretend to be or maybe actually was a Swedish orphan who came to England when she was very young. Oh, she's got to be pretending. Her story makes no sense. Right. Well, though this entire sequence makes no sense. Okay, I see where- But also her acting makes no sense. Like, at one point, they order drinks, and you have a shot back to the bar, and you see one of the bartenders reaching for a certain bottle, and then she has the most- blatant glaring look of like oh no not that bottle on her face that even her completely shit-faced companion would have been like what what's wrong right i think the idea is she's supposed to be conflicted but she's conflicted in a way no human being ever is it's like before every line she like rolls a die to see whether she's conflicted or not yeah then just goes with it full body Similarly disorienting is this is the longest stretch of John Wayne talking, where he's just doing a John Wayne. He's just talking like this, just being a simple down-home guy, asking what the lady wants to drink. Is that supposed to be that English isn't his native language? Is it supposed to be that we're not even trying to make him Swedish? What is happening? Can I tell you that I had no idea that he was Swedish until this whole thing started? Yeah. And when they kept referring to somebody being Swedish, I thought it was just one of the other guys putting on a weird accent. And I was like, oh, well, I guess it could be that guy or that guy. Whatever. Absolutely. I had the same experience. Like, I think I got it a little bit faster because a little bit earlier in the sequence, they're like, We gotta get him back to his family in Sweden and pat him on the back. Yeah, sorry, when I say this scene, I mean this section. Yeah. Where he becomes the focus of the film briefly. Right, and like, that is where I'm like, he's Swedish? What? What? It is a guy who is disorientingly not even trying to play Swedish to the point where you're like, is that supposed to be him trying? In that he isn't trying at all? And then a woman overacting a confusing sentiment so hard. Right, opposite him. So that every single new line, you're like, wait, who, why, what's happening? Every new line is an opportunity for something to clarify itself. And then it just gets more confusing. I don't think I've ever seen such a clear example of what we would say two people being in a completely different film. And it's so stark because they're just sitting at a very simple wooden table with two wooden chairs. So there's nothing to look at but them. I think the other wild thing is that you also don't even need this scene at all. No, that's true. Like, she doesn't have any relevance at all. Her relevance is done once he almost gets out the door of this seedy bar slash clearly just kidnapped den. Like, I don't know why they fucking stay, but whatever. And he, like, almost gets out the door, and she convinces him to go back inside. And then her plot function is done. You can just skip ahead to the part where the guys are like, hey, where's our very Swedish friend John Wayne? (laughs) You don't need this weird scene between him and her, where you're like, is she lying? Is she actually Swedish? Does she not know? Is it possible she doesn't know if she's Swedish or not? (laughs) Well, also, like, is she being paid? Mm -hmm. Why is she in on this? But we haven't set any of that up. 
she just is trying to communicate by standing up and ruining the whole plan where her lines in kidnapping are and aren't. It's not great. <laughs> nope. Let's rate this movie. Uh, uh, four? Uh, yeah, I was in the four to five range and I'm willing to go four. Yeah. I'm not willing to go up to five because I think it is actually below average. And I have to say that I'm probably grading on a curve that putting it against Grapes of Wrath having ruined the curve. Yeah, but no, I think that's fair. When this movie briefly does something well, it does it very, very well. But it's not even close to half the runtime it's doing that. I think it is a question of how much can the score rise up from a few moments of greatness and this is not the movie where I want to go to the mat to figure that out, you know? No. Someday I will have to argue about the end of La La Land making up for most of La La Land. <laughs> I don't want to b- blow that argument on this film that I honestly forgot about the first act of before the movie was over. I think that that's totally fair. Uh... Should you watch this movie? No. This is the argument Susan was making last week, except I fully am on board with it, of there's a much better John Ford movie this year. (laughs) With Greg Dolan doing the cinematography. Yeah, there's absolutely no reason to watch this movie. And I like boat movies, and I say you can skip it. Eh. It's not that it's not a must-watch. It's just not good i mean it's just like utterly forgettable oscar fare but the 1940 version you know yeah it does a bunch of things the oscars like it's on a boat they love that shit they fucking love it when it's on a boat they love having a couple of big showy shots and a big performancey scene and they love right now they love big opening crawls about what it is to be ah men men <laughs> The fact that it never coheres into a movie isn't really a problem for them. (laughs) Right. But is a problem for us. Oh, for sure. But you know what coheres into a movie? Next week's movie. Because it's The Great Dictator. I don't actually know because I've never seen it, but I'm so excited. It's good stuff. It's our first official We Should Have Watched It Chaplin, right? Because City Lights didn't actually get nominated. That is correct. Yes. Our first and last Chaplin. Which was a fill-in for a movie that we can't watch because it's in the UCLA vault, who we haven't mentioned in a while. Shout out UCLA Film Archives. We miss talking about you. Yeah. Get at us if you ever want to let us watch those movies. I've told you, I think someday we will be able to watch those movies. My wife ended up actually working briefly with the UCLA Film Archive because they wanted to kind of redo their web presence, redo what you could access and how online. So she ended up going to UCLA and working with them a lot for like six months. And we're like, yeah, one of our big problems is we have this huge film archive and nobody can get at it. Did she talk to them about our podcast? I think briefly it came up. I mean, it's a big library. A lot of people work for UCLA's library system. And so it was not like she was at the very upper echelons of it or something. But like people at the UCLA Film Library are aware of the issue of when you can get access to the UCLA Film Archive, you're not a person that needs it because you're important enough that you could get those screenings a different way. It's a thing that they are working through and trying to fix because they're aware they're the only source for a lot of these. 
Well, I look forward to that day when we can finally watch. I don't even remember what the other movies were. Um, I I know that one of them was like about nurse. It was it was a uh, the director we hate. That there was one more of his that we missed. The Ernst Lubitsch one actually is completely lost to time. Wait, and it was in the second year. Oh right. I thought he did White Parade. White Parade is the one about nurses. Yes, I thought he did White Parade. Uh, no, I think you're getting it confused with the Love Parade. That's absolutely what's happening because you're right. It's the one about the king or whatever, the the the, the Patriot. Yes, that's the one that's lost to time. And then we have one other one that was uh, East Lynn was our other one that isn't actually lost to time, but is lost to us unless we can get into the UCLA fi- Film Library. And, of course, the version of Skippy that will lift the curse and allow us to live free and full lives <laughs> exists in the UCLA Film Archives as well. Yes. Uh, but I think we're kind of through those days. Pretty much we're getting to where people knew how to archive shit. I don't think there are any other lost ones at this point. Yeah. Hard to track down? Sure, but not lost. Ostensibly, this movie was supposed to be pretty hard to track down. And, like, the actual rights are kind of all over the place. Apparently Criterion has the rights to it, but hasn't released anything of it. Which, it's not their fault they had to release a point break. That was much more important than re-releasing this movie. Yeah! But it's a quick Google search away. If, for some reason, you have been cursed by a broken copy of Skippy to watch this film. Uh, And if you can't find it, you can always email us at screentestoftime at gmail.com, and I'm sure we would be happy to hook you up. But yeah, next week, The Great Dictator, which I'm super excited about because I've always wanted to watch it and for some reason haven't. Well, actually, in the last two years, I haven't watched it because I don't watch movies that were nominated for Best Picture unless it's for this project. (laughs) That's pretty much where I'm at. I will occasionally incidentally watch a Best Picture winner. But I try and let that be a surprise. And if I'm like, well, that's going to get nominated, I don't go see it in theaters. Yep. So until then, this, uh, um, I mean, it, it was a movie. Yeah. I mean, technically speaking, it was a movie. But like the only interesting thing about it is that it was four plays stitched together. And you can kind of see the seams. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Just a boom. A great big. Dynamite! Boom! I quit! Well, we're all quitting, I'm thinking. I'm through. Captain, watch you up, man. Everybody out. Sir, what's the meaning of this? Hey, Captain, I'll answer question. Well, we didn't sign on, sir, to kind of... Oh, man, he's waiting. Well, so are we. All right, let the old man himself be. I dare, but I quit. I ain't gonna sign on this old...